The Pesach tells us that there are various types of misas based in various ways of a person who loses lease on life to be killed. One of them is skila. Skila is a particularly (coughs) egregious method of dying. And the Torah says very clearly, (laughs) If a person has this din, he violated a serious prohibition in Torah, and he's chayef skila, he's obligated by Bezdin to be stoned, the Talisa Osal Ish. It's not just that he is killed by stoning, but after he's dead, they take the body and they hang it up for all to see. But the Pasuk is very clear when it says, Do not leave the body hanging. Bury him that day. Because it's an embarrassment to Hashem that he's hanging. So he's chayv skila, you kill him. After you kill him, you hang him on a post for all to see. But that day, before sunset, you have to take him down. Why? Because as the Torah tells us, it's an embarrassment to Hashem. It's an embarrassment to God to allow that body to hang overnight. Therefore, take it down and bury it right away. Now Rashi explains to us, why is this an embarrassment to Hashem if the body remains hanging? Explains Rashi, Man is made in the image of Hashem. And even more, Yisrael are actually children of Hashem. So therefore, we are the image of Hashem, we're children of Hashem, and therefore it's an embarrassment to Hashem to leave the body hanging. But then Rashi continues, Moshal, let me give you a Moshal. There were two identical twins, but they took divergent paths in life. And one rose to prominence and became a governor, became nobility, and the other went to a life of crime. And at a certain point, the one who turned to criminal ways was caught and hung. And because he was an identical twin to the governor, people said, oh, look, 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 the governor's hanging. And it was an embarrassment to the governor, and therefore Rashi explains, take the body down, because it's a zilzul shamelech, it's an embarrassment to the king, and because man looks like God. And that seems to be what Rashi is saying. And if you think about this Rashi, I believe it's very, very difficult to understand for two reasons. Number one, it's very difficult to mistake a human being for God. I mean, let's be very blunt. Uh, how many rivers have you created? How many stars? How many oceans? Uh, how good are you creating a, an eye? I've never met a human being who could in any way pass for God. As a matter of fact, <clears throat> certain religions have their God who got killed. It's kind of hard to, to, to buy into that philosophy. So what does Rashi mean when he says, kill us a look into... Take down the dead body because it's an embarrassment to Hashem and because people are going to say somehow it's Hashem, it's a symbolic image of Hashem. Very difficult to understand how that's an embarrassment to Hashem. That's a human being, flesh and blood hanging. The fact that he's dead proves he's not God. So why would that be an embarrassment to Hashem? And even if you'll explain to me somehow symbolically created in the image, I have a much more simple question to ask. What do we need the muscle for? Rashi explained to us, man is created in the image of Hashem. Okay, whatever that means, somehow man has the symbolic semblance, resemblance, somehow you'll mistake him for Hashem, okay. But let me give you a mushroom, in case you don't understand, let me make it more clear. Two brothers who are twins, and one turns to a life of crime, one becomes a prince, 
And when the one who would turn to life a crime is hung, they'll say, oh look, it's the prince, because they're identical twins. Number one, I surely don't need the mushal, but more than that, the mushal is very, very problematic, because no human being hanging there looks like God. Not an identical twin, not a twin in any sense. So number one, what does Rashi mean? That it's an embarrassment because we're creating the image of Hashem? And number two, what do we need the mushal for? And the mushal, in fact, makes it more difficult to understand. And to answer this question, let's begin a little bit of background by understanding this concept of the human being. And to begin, I'll share with you an interesting medrash. The medrash Rabbah tells us, Hillel Azokin, and one day when Hillel was leaving his Talmidim, he went on the path, and his Talmidim continued with him. And they said to him, Rebbe, where are you going? In those days they learned Allah literally from whatever their Rebbe did. And Hillel said, I'm going to do a mitzvah. Rebbe, what mitzvah is that that you're going to do? To go do? And explains, I'm going to the bathhouse to wash. Is that a mitzvah? And what kind of mitzvah is it to go to the bathhouse and wash? Explains he'll look at what happens in the Roman nobility. They make statues. And there's a curator. There's a man whose sole job it is to clean the statues. And he's paid a fine wage. And not just that, it's considered an honorable position. If they pay a man to clean the statue, and he's given honor for it, I, who was made in the image of Hashem, shouldn't I clean my body? And shouldn't that be an honor to Hashem? And shouldn't that be a mitzvah? And that's the medrash. Now, let's understand what this medrash is teaching us. And let me begin with the following. It would be very hard-pressed for any of us to say that Hillel Hazakein was a kofer. He was a heretic. We'd be um, on pretty shaky ground to say that. But here's the problem. What he's saying sounds very, very close to that. Because we know one of the basics of our Amunah system is that Hashem has no limits, no bounds, no corporeality. Meaning to say Hashem is boundless, limitless, beyond any description, beyond any definition, because there's no, no body to Hashem, no containment to Hashem, no limit to Hashem. So what does Hillel mean that my body, I'm washing my body just like the, the curators who washes the Roman statue, and my body is created in the image of Hashem, his body is not the image of Hashem. Hashem has no body. But worse than that, Hillel missed the boat totally and completely. Anyone would tell you the greatness of the human being is not the body. It's the neshama, the soul, the person. The greatness of the human is not his physicality. That was from the offer. That was taken from the ground. The greatness of the human being is what a human being can accomplish with his neshama, with his mind, with his essence. But the body is very similar to Elsie the cow, to a giraffe, to a baboon. The body is not the greatness of the human. The body is not the image of Hashem. If you tell me the neshama was created in the image of Hashem, that'd be one thing. But that's not what Hill's saying. Hill's saying, I was washing the body because just like they washed the, the statues and they're given honor for that, they're paid money for that, my body was created in the image of Hashem. And therefore, it's proper for me to treat it with honor, with dignity, and to wash it. The problem is, what does Hillel mean? And to answer this question, and to get into the essence of what we're dealing with this evening, let's begin with the following. There is a concept called a replica. A replica is a copy or reproduction. It's something on a small scale model 
of the original. So for instance, a number of years ago I took my kids to the Empire State Building and we rode the elevator to the 86th floor and there was the observatory and there you saw a gift shop and in the gift shop they sold replicas of the Empire State Building, a small scale model of the Empire State Building. Now, a replica is something that reminds you of the original. It doesn't carry the weight of the original, it doesn't carry any honor of the original, just something to remind you. An F-15 model plane will be, oh, I don't know, maybe 12 inches long. It reminds you of, but it contains nothing of the actual item that it is a replica of. So, for instance, if you bought that little Empire State Building model and brought it home and tried to ride the elevator to the 86th floor, you'd find it very difficult. If you bought your F-15 bomber model and tried to drop something on Syria, you'd find it very incapable because it it's just something that reminds you of sort of a copy, a reproduction that's a replica. A level above that is something called a representative. A representative is almost a delegate, an agent for someone who has a power vested within him from the actual source. So for instance, before the Second World War there was an expression that if you spit on a British sergeant, it's as if you're spitting on the Queen herself. Because a British sergeant is a representative. He's an ambassador of the government, of the Queen. And in that sense, he carries some of the dignity, some of the honor. He's a representative of the King. There's power invested in him. But there's a higher level called a representation. A representation is something that is in a whole different category. A flag of a country is a representation of the country. A king who made a statue in the good old days, if you spat on that statue, you were summarily executed because it's a representation of the king. It connotes the king. It doesn't just remind you in a sense. It's actually representative of it. It's a representation. It's almost like the king, part of his essence is there. When I was a kid many years ago, I was very involved in martial arts. And as you know, many of the styles are from Japan. In any case, on the back of our dojo, there was a very large Japanese flag. And I remember an old-timer who had been a Marine in World War II came in one day into the karate studio and said, Do you know how many of our boys died for that flag? How dare you put up that flag? You see, when he saw the flag of Japan, and that was a representation of that government, and a People will die for their flag. They'll carry it with great honor. There's certain laws how to fold the flag. It's not supposed to stay up at night because it's a representation of the government. I believe that's exactly shot in Hillel. You see, the statue of the king is not merely a replica. It doesn't have to look like the king. It's not a representative. It's a representation of. It carries some of the honor, some of the almost the grandeur of the king, and that's a representation. What Hillel was saying is, the human body is a representation of God in a very different form, meaning if you see a statue of the king, you're not going to talk to it. It's made of marble. It's not a human being. It's not the actual king, but it carries with it not just a replica, not just a mini version, not even a representative, but it's actually a representation of, it carries much of the honor and much of the 
covered due to it because it's actually a representation of the king. And what Hillel is saying is, that is the body of man. <clears throat> when you walk in the street, you are a representative of Hashem, a representation of Hashem, a person who truly understood what a human being would is, would say, oh my goodness, and that is a representation of Hashem. And this concept, I believe, is very, very eye-opening. A number of years ago, when I was a Rebbe in Rochester, and a fellow moved in to a adjoining backyard. My backyard actually touched his. And I was in the backyard one day, and I said, Hi, how are you? My name is Schaefer. I live over here. And he said, Oh, nice to meet you. I'm Father Mahoney. I said, Oh, Father Mahoney. In that case, it's Rabbi Schaefer. Ooh, Rabbi Schaefer. His demeanor changed. <clears throat> the way he spoke changed because he saw a rabbi. And he represented representative of the Jewish people. And if you know that many of the Christians, the way they deal with a Jew is, that is God's people. And I think what Hillel is sharing with us is a fundamental concept. The body of man, when you walk in the street, when you get up in the morning, you are a representative of Hashem, you're a representation of Hashem, and what you are is a manifestation of Hashem in this world. When a person knows how to look at himself, when a person understands what a human being is, he sees a representation of God in some level, much like the statue to the king, and much like the flag to the country. It's a representation of the honor of the country, of the power. That's what the body is, and I believe that's exactly what Hillel is teaching us. And this concept, I believe, is fundamental and incredibly empowering. Could you imagine what it would mean if I actually got this concept? When I get up in the morning to think that I, when I walk in the street, represent Hashem. When you look at me, you're looking at a representation of Hashem, maybe a replica on some little level, whatever that means, but carrying tremendous honor due to Hashem. And this concept alone would greatly change anyone's understanding of self. And it does help us a little bit understand the answer to Rashi. See, Rashi's saying, when you hang that man who got skila, Take them down immediately. Why? Because that's a replica, a representative, a representation of Hashem. And you understand that that's like the statue to the king? And granted, it's not the king. No one's going to mistake it for the king. Obviously, it's dead and the king is alive. But it carries the honor, much like a flag, much like a statue carries the honor. That is human being. And you can't just leave him up there because he represents Hashem. It speaks to the honor of Hashem. And if you leave them up there, it's an embarrassment, it's debasing to the honor of Hashem. And again, this concept alone, if we got this, would be radical, life-changing, because do you understand what it means? If I ever understood this single concept, I wouldn't quibble, I wouldn't be petty, I wouldn't be involved in the time-wasting things that I do. I'd recognize the nobility, the magnitude of who I am. Not just in the image of Hashem, but a replica, a representative representation of Hashem right there. What am I going to do with my time? What am I going to accomplish? And I believe that this is very eye-opening and very important and helps us answer one question on Rashi. But the problem is it really doesn't answer the Rashi. Because after Rashi said it's an embarrassment to the king to leave him hanging and because man was created in the image of Hashem, then Rashi gives us a mushal. You didn't quite get it yet. You didn't quite understand what I'm saying. Let me give you a parable. Imagine you have two identical twins. One becomes a prince. 
the other turns to a life of crime. And when the criminal's hung, people say, oh, look, look at that. It's the prince who's hanging. That is incredibly difficult to understand because he's not saying that man is a replica. He's not saying man's a representative or representation. He's saying an identical twin, that someone could look at the man hanging there and say, it's the governor, it's the prince who's hanging, as if to say, when if you'd leave this man hanging on the tree, people would say, oh look, it's Hashem. That, we haven't answered at all. And that is very, very difficult to understand. And I'd like to delve a little deeper and see if we could actually understand this. And to do this, we're going to have to take a little bit of a tour of life. And let me begin with one important observation. There are a number of names of Hashem that we use in davening. <clears throat> one of the names we use of Hashem is Ad Doshem, Aleph Dalad Nun Yud. <clears throat> Another name is Yud Kei Vav Another name is Elokim. Now the Mechaber tells us in Shulchan Aruch that each of those names has a different meaning. And ideally, when you say that word, <clears throat> the different name of Hashem, you're supposed to have different kavanas in mind. You're supposed to have in mind what that name represents. And Shulchan Aruch tells us what they represent. When you see the letters Aleph, Dalad, Nun, Yun, you're supposed to say the words Adoshem, but in your mind you're supposed to envision Hashem as Adon Ha'olam, Master of the Universe. That's when you say Aleph, Dalad, Nun, Yun. <clears throat> when the same expression is Yud, K Vav, K, spelled out with the four letters, then the meaning is very different. It's not just simply Adon HaKol, but it's Hashem Haya, Hovavia, Hashem was, is, and will be. And that's the Kavani you're supposed to have when you read the words spelled out Yud Kei But Elohim, says the Mechaber, is a very different expression. <clears throat> when you read the word Elohim, you're supposed to have in mind Baal HaKochos Kulam, energy source of all creation. When you read those words, you're supposed to understand that everything is and kept in existence by Hashem, and if for a moment Hashem would cease infusing energy into any particle of physicality, it would cease to exist. And this concept of Elohim is basic to understanding creation. You see, we have a very grave misunderstanding about what creation means. The Nevesh explains that any creative act that a human being does is not creative at all. I take existent elements and I rearrange them. I take this, I take that, all elements that are in existence already, I bang them together and make something new. Explains in Nevesh watch the following. Imagine I were to build a shack. Take some wood, take some nails, bang it together and I built a shack. And imagine I were to leave that shack for 20 years and not think about it once. And I come back after 20 years, what would I expect to see? albeit a little bit weathered, maybe a little bit worn, but I expect to see the same shack. Explains the Nevesh the reason for that is, is because I'm not a creator. I took elements that were in existence already, boards and nails, I reshuffled them, but I created nothing, I rearranged things that were here already. Before creation, nothing existed. There was no sand, no quarks, no molecules, there was nothing in existence from which Hashem could bring forth anything. Ex nihilo, yesh in creation means from absolute vacuum, from absolute absence of anything, Hashem said vayihi, and a hundred billion galaxies, each containing 
a hundred billion stars came into existence. But that type of creation is very, very different than any creative act that man will ever engage in. Because that type of creation, yesh ayin, <coughs> requires not just creating, but maintaining as well. The being mishave. You see, Hashem is not just the creator who fashioned and formed it, but a yesh ayin creation means there was no substance. There was absence of anything. And for anything to exist, Hashem had to create it, and has to constantly maintain it. Because if for one moment in time Hashem would cease infusing energy, it would cease to exist because there is nothing other than the will of Hashem keeping it in existence. And if you'd like to fundamentally understand this concept, I have a muscle that I think helps clarify it. <clears throat> imagine it's a cold February night. And imagine I'm waiting for the bus and I'm shivering to the bone. I close my eyes and I just want to go away. I imagine a beach scene beautiful white sand, ocean blue, beautiful clear sky, one lone seagull gently wafting across the sky, the bus comes splash. Gone is the sand, gone is the ocean blue, gone is the seagull. I am the dreamer. As long as I think about the dream, the dream exists. The minute I cease thinking about this dream, the sand is gone, the ocean blue is gone, and the seagull is gone as well. And that is Hashem's relationship to anything in existence. And much like I to the dream, as long as I keep it, it exists. Anything that exists only exists because Hashem created it, and His mishava keeps it in creation. From absolute nothing, Hashem created everything, and everything that is only is and remains because Hashem constantly infuses energy into it at every moment in time. And that is the concept of Elohim, Baal HaKochos Kulam. Do you know why Hashem can do anything that Hashem wants? Because Hashem keeps everything in existence, and nothing can violate the will of Hashem, because nothing can move, and nothing can exist, and nothing can happen without Hashem willing it to be, and because Hashem is the platform, Hashem is the dreamer. Imagine in my dream, for a minute I'm dreaming the seagull flying east. And suddenly the seagull says, no, no, I want to go west. I said, no, go east. He said, no, no, I want to go west. I said, no, hey, come on, I'm the dreamer. It can't happen. Because I dream, I control. How Bechira functions, that's a fine question. But the bottom line is, when Hashem created the world, Hashem created it, is Mesavet, keeps it, and that's the concept that we're supposed to have in mind. And when we say, Elohim, Hashem is Bala Kochos Kulam. One more step. The Medrash tells us something very, very difficult to understand. When Moshe Rabbeinu came up to receive the Torah, the Malachim refused. And not only did the Malachim refuse, <clears throat> the Malachim gave a tremendous fight until Hashem said to Moshe, explain why they have to do it, and <clears throat> Moshe Rabbeinu explained why they had to, and only then did the Malachim acquiesce. Now here's an obvious question. Giving the Torah to the Jewish people sounds like a very good thing to do. Right? And Jewish people learn, they do mitzvahs. Why in the world would the Malachim have a problem? Give the Torah, of course give the Torah. Why, why shouldn't give the Torah? Why are they fighting? And why are they putting up such a fight to the extent that if Moshe couldn't have answered, they would have refused the Torah to go to man? Explains the Shev Shmeitzer, you're misunderstanding what's actually happening in creation. You see, when we see the physical world, we see the world as we think it is but we're seeing but a very, very small part of it. 
If you've ever seen an iceberg, an iceberg is huge. It can be 500 feet tall, a massive mountain. And as large as it is, as massive as it is, you also understand that 90% of it is submerged. As large, as massive as it is, you're seeing but the tip of the iceberg because 90% of the iceberg on average is submerged beneath the surface. When you look at the physical world, you see an incredible cosmos, the size, the magnitude, the complexity, harmonious systems, it's amazing. And you're seeing but a tip of the iceberg because behind every physical element in existence, Hashem created a spiritual counterpart and that spiritual counterpart is much more sophisticated and much greater and it keeps the physical component in existence. Every blade of grass, every tree, anything that happens only happens because Hashem created a malach, a spiritual force that keeps it and keeps it in existence, tells it what to do and keeps it. When you see the physical world as mag- majestic as it is, as massive as it is, you're seeing but a tiny little sliver of the true world and because the underpinnings of the world are the spiritual element and the spiritual element keeps the physical element in existence. Masul Sharm explains to us that when Hashem created the physical world and Hashem made the spiritual underpinnings of it keep everything in existence, Hashem said to Adam, this is your world. I created it for you. It exists for you. Pay attention that you don't destroy my world. And because the way man uses the world determines whether the world gets kiyom, gets fulfilled, gets strength and invigorated, or the opposite becomes destroyed. And the Shev Shemites explains to us that it really cuts a lot deeper than that. When Moshe Benu went up to receive the Torah, what was happening was a transfer of power. You see, the Malachim keep up the spiritual world. And the spiritual world keeps up the physical world. And what Hashem was saying to the Malachim was, the entire world is going to be given over to man. I'm giving the keys of my separation to Adam. The way he uses the world will determine whether it grows, whether it flourishes, or the opposite. And the Malachim said, "That's don't do it. If man learns, if man does what he's supposed to, it's great. But what if he doesn't? What is man that you're going to remember him? Look at the frailty of the human being. If he turns south, he'll destroy the whole world. But the Shev Shemites explains what they really, what Hashem was saying to Malachim was, your existence and your future is going to be dependent on him. And if you'd like to understand what really was happening, I want you to imagine the following. Imagine that you have a man who worked his whole life. Simple man. He was a tailor. But he lived very simply. He scrimped. He saved. And after 50 years of work, he put away a nice substantial sum in the bank and he managed to save a million dollars. And he has a grandson, a Harvard Business School graduate. And the Harvard Business School graduate says, Zaidi, I have this tremendous idea, this tremendous concept. I'm going to change the world. It's going to be an unbelievable business venture and it's going to return your capital. All I need is some money. And if you'll just give me a million dollars, I can guarantee you're going to get back 10 million, maybe 20 million dollars. I'd have to imagine that the grandfather, being a little bit older and wiser, 
would be way more than skeptical and would probably say something like, listen, Sonny, I am not taking 50 years of my labor and giving it over to your scam. What do you know? What do you understand? What are you going to do with it? And if you'd like to understand what Hashem was saying to the Malachim, your future is dependent on man. But it wasn't one human being, and it wasn't one Malach. If you've ever gone to a retirement community, and if you can imagine Deerfield Beach, where my father spent the last years of his life, it's a beautiful, beautiful place in Florida. It's a gated community, small, and everyone there is retired. That means everyone there, they pay their rent, they pay their utilities, but they don't work. How is it possible? They all have they worked for many years, they put away money, maybe a 40k, 401k, maybe whatever their retirement plans are, and all of them live on the dividends. Now imagine that the U.S. economy tanks. It shouldn't happen, but it tanks. And suddenly a young fellow comes there and he calls together all of the people from Deerfield Beach and says, ladies and gentlemen, your entire retirement future depends on how much money you earn. And you know that the economy is tanking. And you know that the dividends are not going to be coming in. I have a venture. Invest in my venture, and I'm telling you, you'll be so phenomenally wealthy. You're not going to just get 7%, not even 10%. You're going to be earning 25 30% per year. Let's go. When Moshe Rabbeinu was to take the Torah down to Adam, the Malachim said, absolutely not. That's our future. Everything that we are, everything that exists is dependent on the spiritual element of the world. There was a transference of the keys of creation. And when Adam was to receive the Torah, when Moshe Rabbeinu was taking down the Torah here, and the Malachim's future was absolutely based on what man does. It was each person, each Jew learning, has hundreds, thousands and thousands of Malachim, and their future who they are for eternity is based on what he does. And one simple Jew who learns, who davens, who does chesed, who does what he's supposed to, thousands, hundreds of thousands of malachim are created and are powerful and flourish and shine as bright as the stars. But the opposite is true as well. If he doesn't do what he's supposed to, if he bottles and he stops learning and he starts doing what he isn't supposed to do and he turns south, those malachim are damaged, the upper worlds are damaged. And if you would like to understand what life is like after we leave this earth, just imagine that the people of Deerfield Beach said, you're right, we're desperate. And they invested all of their future in this fellow. And he worked hard. For 10 years he did nothing but sweat and slave and live and sleep the business. And after 10 years he comes back to Deerfield Beach and gathers everyone together in the community center, a thousand people there. And he says, ladies and gentlemen, I'm now here to tell you that your entire investment has been paid back in spades. We are now going to pay you back 10 times the original investment. Could you imagine the cheers? Could you imagine the tremendous joy, the jubilation of, wow, our Savior. That's what it's like when a person grows and accomplishes and really reaches his potential, and he leaves this earth cheering crowds, huge, huge crowds of Malachim, who say, that a boy, look what you did, we're forever grateful for what you've done for us. Because for eternity, you've made us greater, 
for eternity we're going to enjoy it. It's not just your Olam Haba, it's our eternity as well. And I think that's shot in this Rashi. What Rashi is saying is you don't understand when that man is hanging, it's not just a replica. It's not just a representative of Hashem. Let me give you a mushal. Imagine that there are two identical twins. When the one who turned to criminal activities was hung, he's identical to the king. You see, when you see a human being, we see the body. But a malach sees a creator. Why? Because when Hashem created man, Hashem created man to be a little creator. Entire upper worlds are based on what we do. Much like Hashem is Bala Kochas Kulam, Hashem is the energy source of all of creation. When Hashem made Adam, Hashem said, Adam, you are now to be the energy source of the spiritual world. And when the Torah was given over to the Klai Yisrael, we became the custodians, we became the ones who determined what is going to happen in our world, in the world of the Malachim, and a tremendous change happened in creation. From that moment on, every Malach that exists, every spiritual element that exists, is shaped, molded, and kept in existence by what we do. And while we don't understand this, because we live in a very physical world, where my body's put in the grave, and I separate in a flash, in a brilliant moment of clarity, I get it. The tremendous value of a single mitzvah. I created a malach, and that malach was powerful and shiny. And one wrong thought, one jealous thought, and one angry, vengeful thought, and I created a malach ra, and more than that. I damaged entire parts of the spiritual world, and I created black holes, I created damage. The power of man is that he is a little creator. We're not the creator of the heavens and the earth, but Hashem put within our potential to create entire spiritual dimensions, entire malachim, and their existence and how great they are, or the opposite, that's based on us. And if a person ever understood what a human being really is, he'd look at a human being hanging and say, Oy vey, it's a little creator, it's Hashem. Now we may not make that mistake, but a malach might well. Because a malach understands how much is dependent on man. How much man shapes things, how much man impacts things, and as a result, that's a zilzal, it's an embarrassment to the king to have a man hanging, because man is identical to Hashem. Not just a replica, not a representation, but identical in the sense that Hashem is the balakochus kulam, Hashem is the energy source of everything, so too is man. Hashem gave man that power to be the energy source of the upper world, the upper worlds are the energy source of the physical world, and in that sense, man is a little creator. And my friends, if we ever understood this to a tenth of the truth of it, I guarantee we would be different human beings. You see, as we approach Elul, that is the greatest charge. Here we come. It's halfway through. I'm getting close to Rosh Hashanah. Time to get serious. What have I done wrong? Well, I don't know. Maybe I spoke a little Lashon Hara. Maybe I could learn more. Maybe I could give do a little more chesed. But the reason we have such difficulty doing tshuva, and the reason we have such difficulty seeing what we do wrong, is because we don't have a clue to our potential. We don't have a clue to what's expected of us, because we don't have a clue to our capacity. And if we ever had an eye glimpse, even a sliver of an eye glimpse of the true greatness of a human, we'd understand what I could accomplish in a moment. 
what I could accomplish if I truly put my brain on in one davening, if I'd really pay attention, one act of chesed, if I really turned my heart to another Jew, and one moment of really sacrificing what I could change and what I could accomplish, I'm more than nobility, I'm more than a king, I am a little creator, little me, little, I am a little creator. And every human being is that, the Jews so much more so, we are bunim to Hashem, but that concept is lost to mankind. We live in a generation where we're all slum rats. Listen, whatever, you know, come on. I'm okay, you're okay. What could you expect from human being anyway? We're all just victims of the society we live in, victims of our upbringing, victims of what we've been exposed to. What could you expect from us? And that is probably the single greatest lie that's fostered onto man and that's put onto the human psyche because what it does is so disparages the human being and so belittles him you take the pinnacle of creation the reason for creation and make him into a slum rat and what you get is people who act like their expectations are and it doesn't take a rocket scientist to realize that anyone who accomplished anything in life had to have a very powerful sense of self had to have a very powerful sense of I can do it I can accomplish. Unfortunately, most of the people who have that sense accomplish things in very, very small areas. They make a lot of money, and maybe they write a famous book, and maybe they become a painter, an athlete. But that drive, understanding that I am somebody, I am worth fighting for, I'm worth struggling for, is at the key at the root of any successful person you've ever met. And then I think what this Rashi is sharing with us is that any perception that any human being can have falls very, very far from reality. And the reality is our capacity is almost unlimited. But that doesn't mean to lift heavy weights. And it doesn't mean to run very fast. Our capacity to grow, to change, to accomplish, to change the physical world I live in a little bit, to change the spiritual world to a tremendous extent. But it's every action, every thought, every moment of my life. The problem is we get so accustomed to living in the physical world that if it's not tangible, it's not physical, it doesn't exist. And in that blindness, we forget the power and the impact and the greatness of human being. I think what this Rashi is sharing with us is a fundamental concept. On the simplest level, when you see a human being hanging, you're supposed to know that's a replica of Hashem. Much like when Hillel came back from the bath, he was going to the bath, he said to his Talmud, I'm going to do a mitzvah. What's a mitzvah? <clears throat> I'm washing the body. Just like the statue of the king. What is the statue of the king? It's a representation of the king. And the custodian who washes that statue is given honor, paid a fine salary, because that represents the king. The human being, a bowery bum, the lowest human being is a representation of Hashem, created in the image of Hashem. The body is not the greatness of the human, but the body is part of the representation of God. And when you see the body, you see that which Hashem created, that which Hashem invested much power in. And there's a replica, a representative representation. That is a very, very important lesson to understand the greatness of the human. But what Rashi is sharing with us goes leagues and leagues beyond that. Because it's not just that a human being is a representation of God. 
it's not just like he's the British sergeant when you spit on the sergeant. It's like you're spitting on the, on the queen. And not even like a flag. It explains Rashi, it's so much beyond that. Let's look at the muscle, Rashi says. Two identical twins. <clears throat> one goes to a life of crime. One becomes the nobility. When the one who became a criminal hangs, it's a, he's identical, he looks the same. What does Rashi mean? How can he be identical? And the answer is not in the physical world we live in, but every human being was given tremendous power to impact the spiritual world. The Jewish nation so much more so, and doubly so once we were given the Torah, because every spiritual component only exists because the Jews do what we're supposed to, and we keep the spiritual components in existence, and every malach only is created and only exists because we do what we're supposed to do, and the human being is a very powerful, powerful force. Not in terms of chopping down trees or lifting weights, but in terms of keeping the malachim, the spiritual dimensions around. And if we really ever understood it, we'd understand just like Hashem is Baal HaKochus Kulam. Hashem is the energy source of all the creation. Just like I to the seagull, as long as I think about the seagull exists because I'm the dreamer, as long as Hashem thinks about anything in physicality, anything in the spiritual world, Hashem keeps it in existence. If Hashem would cease keeping it in existence, it would cease to be because Hashem is the energy source, so too Hashem made man to be the energy source of the upper world. Every word of Torah, every chesed, every time I do what's right, I create a malach. But it's not just that I create a malach, the existing malachs are given tremendous energy, tremendous growth, and their future is tied to us. And much like that fellow who comes to Deerfield Beach to retirement community after and says, I've brought back tremendously good news. Your original investment was worth 10 times. A human being who actually lives his purpose and really accomplishes when he leaves this earth. Leagues and leagues of malachim come out cheering, wow, thank you, thank you for eternity, what you've done for us. And unfortunately, the opposite of a person doesn't accomplish his purpose in creation. Every one of those malachim are diminutive, are made small, are blackened, and for eternity, they look at him as the source of their being smaller, being dimmed, not being able to enjoy proximity to Hashem, but it's for eternity. And again, if we understood this concept to a tenth of its depth, I believe it would change the course of our life. Because I'd understand the gravity of what I do for the good and the opposite. And I'd approach a Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur with tremendous reverence, I would approach my life with tremendous respect. What I could accomplish, let's go. Make a cheshben and nefesh, time every minute. What do you mean time management? Every second counts. I'd write it down, I'd plan it, I'd be a different human being. And I want to finish with one last concept. When I was a Rebbe in Rochester, I often would work on shmuzim, and I'd have to walk, and I needed a quiet place. And I worked in Shmuzim. I also worked on Shia many times. I found myself in the George Eastman house. About a half mile from the yeshiva was George Eastman's mansion. George Eastman had been the founder of Kodak, and he built himself quite an estate, and it was made later into now a museum. And it's beautiful gardens, and, and it's, a, it's just it's magnificent. It, it really is a palatial manor. In any case, at different times, I also went inside the actual mansion, not just in the gardens, and I read something that I found very, very eye-opening. Every morning, George Eastman would awaken at 8 a.m., exactly at 8 a.m., because that was when the organist 
would begin playing the, his favorite songs. You see, George Eastman's house was arranged. The bottom floor opened up to a very, very high ceiling. The second floor was 30, 40 feet up there. The bedroom surrounded. The organist was right there on the bottom floor. He began playing, and the sound would waft up. And that is how George Eastman would awaken every morning to the sound of his organist playing his favorite song. Now, I wake up in the morning not with an organist. I wake up however I wake up. It might be to an alarm clock. It might be with the crow, crows crowing. But here's the point. Do you understand the self-image that George Eastman had? He was an incredibly powerful man, an incredibly rich man. And because of that, he valued his actions, valued his time, valued his accomplishments. And it was only befitting that an organist should wake him at 8 a.m. in just the befitting manner. And the butler and the maid should prepare the breakfast and everything fitting such an important person. I'd like to share with you, you and I are far more important than George Eastman, far more important than Bill Gates, far more important than Jeff Bezos. And I'll tell you something very clearly. The Torah never extols the value of wealth. And wealth is a tremendous, tremendous Nisoyan. And I don't wish it on anybody, but there is one advantage of extreme wealth. And when you're extremely wealthy, you have a sense of importance. But properly a sense of importance that what I do matters, and what I do is significant, and what I do can change people's lives, can change my own life. Let me take life seriously. And while it may not be worth it because wealth comes at a tremendous cost, the one benefit of extreme wealth is a sense of importance, a sense of value of time, a sense of what I do matters. But I think what this Rashi is sharing with us is you don't need millions in the bank. Because what we have is far more valuable if we could just wake up and we could understand the impact of our actions, if we could understand the great gift that Hashem gave us of time, of mitzvahs, of accomplishments, and understand our actions are so impactful, so life-changing, that every single action for eternity is going to ring out. It requires thinking, it requires understanding, but that's a big part of Elul, to readjust, recalibrate our thinking, and re-understand why we're here and what we can accomplish. And now I'd like to open the floor to questions. Again, I apologize. I think I went longer than I was supposed to, but I am very passionate about this particular um, topic. Please feel free to either raise your hand and ask questions if you're brave, or you could type the questions in. I much prefer if you actually raise your hand, because then I get to take a sip of tea and rest my voice for a moment. So let's start with the first person. Uh, our Landino, you have the floor. Hi, Shalom how are you? Okay, I can't hear you. One second, is it my speaker? One second, let me see if it's my speaker or it's your mic. One second, please, I apologize. It's my speaker, my bad. Okay, yes, please go ahead. It's an honor to talk to the rabbi. Uh, why I'm so important, it's so difficult to change. Okay, that's an excellent question. And the answer is Hashem is very, very good at doing that which Hashem does. You see, Hashem put us in a position of tremendous importance and gave us free will. But you see, if I ever understood how important I am and how much I could accomplish, it would be free will. You can, I would never say a word of Lashon I'd never say a, a damaging word to another human being. I, I'd, I'd recognize the value of my time, I'd recognize the, the impact of my actions, 
and I would not have free will. To allow for free will, Hashem put us into this body, and we fall asleep <clears throat> under these thick, thick coats of physicality. We're he- cloaked by this heavy, heavy body, and I can't think, I can't remember. And what am I doing? What's my time anyway? What can I accomplish? I do daven, I do learn, I do chesed, who cares? Do you understand what I'm saying? Meaning, to allow for free will, Hashem put us into this slumber, into this body. We have no vacaine in the heart. We can't feel, we can't remember. And we have to really work on understanding. And that's why a big part of Musr is trying to remember, trying to understand, so that then I could actually get the motivation to work on it. It'll still be very difficult to change, because that's the way Hashem created us. But at least then I understand what I can do. But again, to allow for free will, Hashem gave us a very even playing field with great potential, but making it very difficult as well to grow. Does that answer the question? Thank you, Rabbi. Okay, good. Okay, okay, very nice. Thank you for visiting. Okay, please feel free to raise your hand if you're brave. If you're not so brave, you can type the question in. Um, Internet, he killed before stoning, thrown off roof or something? I'm not... I'm not sure. What the, yeah, meaning, if you want to skill, skill actually, the, the Mishnahis and Sanhedrin describe they would put him on a, the height of a second-story uh, cliff, basically, and be thrown down onto jagged rocks. If he was still alive, they threw rocks on him. At which point, he was dead. Once he was dead, then he was hung up. A little bit grisly, and a little bit um, graphic. But if you want to look in the Mishnahis and Sanhedrin, they describe exactly how Skila was uh, was enacted. And my grandkids love learning this stuff because they, I don't know why, the, the gore and the grizzly, but whatever. But yes, that, that is correct, yes. Um, okay, please feel free to raise your hand if you have a question. Um, if you're not so brave as to raise your hand and have a question, you could type it in. But again, I, uh, I definitely welcome questions. I also just want to repeat something that, again, this is a, what we discussed tonight is a concept of godless Adam, the greatness of man, and there's a series on the Shmuz site called Arrogance and Humility, Creating a Balanced Sense of Self. I highly recommend that, uh, that series. It's about eight, it's a series about eight separate Shmuzim on this topic. And really it deals with exactly this issue of understanding the greatness of human being and yet remaining humble. We spoke a little bit last week about it. There are the Shmuzim also on the site. So if you're interested, if you go to the Shmuz.com or the Shmuz app, if you look on the top by series, You'll see one of the series is Arrogance and Humility, Creating a Balanced Sense of Self. On the app, on the Android app, it's on the top. You'll see series on the iOS, on the iPhone app, it's on the bottom. On the podcast, you can find it, I think, by searching. There is a search bar in the podcast, but it's often difficult to find things. So you're better off with the um, on the, either the Schmooze app. Um, and the Schmooze app, by the way, is free. If you go to the App Store or you go to uh, Google Play, it's free, so please, uh, please avail yourself of it, um, right? Um, okay, please feel free to raise your hand if you have a question. Um, R. Landino, is that another question that you have? I don't see. Everybody's shy tonight. Everybody's shy. It's a wonderful. Okay. Okay. Let me read a question. Um, how does this relate to doing tshuva? What's the connection? Okay. So what you're saying is I blew it. <laughs> I blew it. Okay, <laughs> I guess it wasn't obvious. You know, sometimes it's very important that people ask questions because sometimes I don't realize. You, you know, you think you. Okay. Anyway, here's here's how it goes. You see, the problem we have with doing tshuva is I'm doing okay. 
I'm doing well. Listen, I'm not saying I'm a tzaddik. I'm not saying I'm a good ador, but, you know, I'm a pretty good guy. I, you know, I could do better maybe, but, you know, <clears throat> the reason why I feel that way is because I don't have a clue to my potential. I don't have a clue to what I can really do. I, if I really understood the greatness of a human being, if I really understood what I could accomplish, I'd realize I'm but a fraction of what I could be. Let's go! There's so much more I could do, so much more I could accomplish. And my actions would be so much more weighty, so much more impactful. I would think so much more before I did things. I'd put in so much more effort into doing things. And the opposite, if I did things wrong, I'd realize the gravity of them. I'd realize how much damage I'm doing. It would change my life radically. A big part of the reason why tshuva is so difficult is because whatever. I learn, I daven, I do chesed, I don't do chesed, I speak Russian, I do what? What does it matter anyway? Who cares? And the reason I feel that way is because I have a very small version of I. I have the 21st century Western civilization version that were just a bunch of little whatever. You know, what can you expect from a human being anyway? You can't really change, you can't really grow. We're all just victims of our society and our upbringing. And, you know, what can you expect of a person anyway? That version is extremely limiting, it's destructive. Because it doesn't allow you to see what you could be. It doesn't allow you to see your potential. If we spend time understanding the greatness of a human, understanding how much Hashem invested in us, how much Hashem made dependent on us, how much our actions changed the physical world and the upper world, we'd be a vastly different human being. So if you ask what does that have to do with tshuva, I think it's everything to do with it because you can't begin doing tshuva until you understand who you are. You can't begin setting goals. By the way, Let's be very clear here. Tshuva is not about feeling bad, 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 terrible, terrible. Tshuva is about recalibrating. Tshuva is about resetting my goals. Tshuva is about being the great human being I was created to be. Tshuva means returning to Hashem. It doesn't mean regret and feel. Now, obviously, regret is a part of it. But the purpose of tshuva is shuvu at Hashem, return to Hashem. When we return to Hashem, return to the purpose of your creation. Return to the greatness of what you were put here to be. Return to your potential. Return to your mission on life. But if you don't know what your mission is, you don't know what your potential is, you don't know what you could accomplish, what do you mean return? There's nothing to return to because there's no, whatever, I'm, I'm okay. I'm okay, you're okay, we're all okay, whatever. So if you want to know why this is basic to tshuva, it's because until you have a clear understanding of the greatness of a human, you cannot begin to set your sights, you cannot begin to set your goals, and you can't even begin to have a serious discussion of becoming the person I was meant to be. Okay. Um, okay, I can't... Re- oh, yes, another question. Okay, you want to ask another question? Okay. okay, we'll give you a chance. Here we go. Your hand is up. Please go for it. Hi. Rabbi. Uh, what is your name, though? Your first name, at least? Ramon. 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 Okay, Ramon. Good. Nice to meet you, Ramon. Sorry, uh, my my question is it uh, it has passed a lot of professionals and I try to make a list how to change, what to change, and I return to that list and I it's like the same. It, it it's a little bit depressing to no 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 you understand to to see it again and I'm not changing. Okay, how 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 I can. Uh, return to that, to to believe that I can do it. I have a lot of potential, but 
the, the, the history, it, it's telling me that I can't. Well, good, excellent. How old are you, Ramon? 34. Okay, okay. So you discovered something that took me many, many years. About five years ago, I woke up and said to myself, I don't get this. I've been learning Musr. I've been working on things for years and years and years. And what have I changed? A little bit here, a little bit there, a little bit. But like in such small, little, incremental levels, like what? Meaning, when I started out, when I was 19, you know, I was first year base medrash, I had lofty goals. Are you kidding? I'm going to work on my midos and I'm going to be a muna and be tochen and dami. I'm going to be, I, I had it all mapped out. By the time I'm 30, by the time I'm 40, by the time I'm 50, I'll, the problem is I turned 30, I turned 40, I turned 50. I also just recently turned 60. And guess what? I'm not there. And at a certain point, what I wanted to do, honestly, was quit. I said, this is crazy. There's something that saved my life. I'm being a little facetious, but I, I do mean it. It get, gave me great comfort. <clears throat> the Derech Hashem explains that you're correct. Much of what you're going to work on can change. Because <clears throat> the human being, the way Hashem created us is, the body stops us from changing. So let's say I want to work on anger. I work on it, I work on it, it somewhat changes a little bit, but it comes back. I make very small changes. And it explains what I'm doing in my neshama is potentially the actions that I did, if it weren't for my body, my neshama would change and I'd get rid of the anger. So what happens is, as I work on it, I create a shadow man who's much greater, much better, meaning whatever work I do that my body stops me, there's this shadow man that becomes greater and bigger and bigger. So I'm working on anger and jealousy and learning and dominating. So it becomes big. So human being may be a very small person, but he has a shadow man who's huge. When my body's put in the ground, I go to the Olam and the Shamos, and then whoosh, I fill in, become that great person. Because the only thing that was holding me back was my body. I put in the work that I should have grown in anger and jealousy, whatever it may be. I couldn't change because of my body, but the work that I put in created this shadow man, so to speak. And when I leave this world and go to the Olam and the Shamos, whoosh, I fill in and I become that huge person, whatever work that I did, I now become. You understand what I'm saying? Yeah, it's incredible. Thank you. This Thank is, you. It is. I agree. It's incredible. I'm telling you, it, it gave me such um, such relief. <laughs> because me it, too. Thank you. Bro. Okay. All right. Good, good. Okay. Thank you. Okay. Uh, again, if you're interested, first of all, I forgot to mention this. We do have a Shmooz WhatsApp Chizik group. If you would like to get, we send out these uh, three, four times a week. Ben Sion Kamenetsky sends them out. We have these short two, three-minute videos. We send them out about three, four times a week. Uh, if you would like to get them sent to your phone, they're inspirational, motivational. If you'd like to join the Shmooz Chizik WhatsApp group, just send a please subscribe to 845-216-9330. Again, that's 845-216-9330. Just write... Please subscribe, and we'll put you into the Shmuz uh, WhatsApp group. Um, also, next week, again, the Shmuz Live will be Thursday night. Uh, I think we'll keep it here on Thursday night for a little while. I'm going to re- send out a survey a little later. If people prefer Wednesday night, we'll see, but we're going to keep it Thursday night. <clears throat> so I hope you'll join us next Thursday night for the Shmuz Live. I thank you very much for joining. I wish you a good Shabbos and much, much Hatzlacha. Thank you.